are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. Tuesday, February 8th. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. The Republican state senator who represents Nevada County, Brian Daly, announces he will challenge Gavin Newsom in the governor's race. The recall of a Republican supervisor, spearheaded by a militia group, has succeeded in Shasta County. Those stories and more from the California Report. After regional news and weather, Paul Emery talks to hydrologist Steve Baker about the vulnerabilities in our water supply. And Mark Cunaberti is here with Money Matters. This is the California Report. I'm Alex Hall in Fresno. Republican State Senator Brian Daly will announce his candidacy for governor this afternoon. Daly represents California's first district in the rural northeast corner of the state. He'll be one of the first Republicans to publicly challenge Gavin Newsom since the governor soundly defeated the effort to push him out of office during the recall election back in September. Daly has been critical of Newsom from his handling of the pandemic to wildfires and climate change. Here he is speaking to Fox 40 television late last year about the governor's rules on masking indoors. Unfortunately, uh, since we've had the state of emergency, the legislature and other branches of government have not been involved in uh, the process making. And the governor is using this as a bully pope and a dictatorship. Daly went on to say that he wears masks whenever he can't social distance, but he also believes there needs to be more freedom to allow people to make their own choices. Other Republicans, including former San Diego mayor and recall contender Kevin Faulkner, have filed paperwork indicating they intend to run in November, but none have officially launched campaigns. A recall campaign led by extreme conservative groups to remove a Shasta County supervisor has succeeded. As KQED Politics editor Scott Schaefer explains, the target of the recall was himself a Republican. Leonard Modi describes himself as a Reagan Republican, but to his critics in Shasta County, Modi was too liberal. The recall was spearheaded by a local militia and supported by those opposed to mask and vaccine mandates, along with supporters of gun owner rights. As of yesterday, the effort to remove Modi from office was ahead with a 56 percent yes to 44 percent no vote. Just over 100 ballots are yet to be counted. The leading replacement candidate is president of a school district in Shasta County. He was in endorsed by recall proponents and promised to support their goals, such as fighting mandates from Sacramento. The group behind the recall at times resorted to threats and intimidation of people who disagreed with them. Supervisor Modi calls them, quote, extremists, anarchists, and white supremacists who he said used lies and disinformation to remove him from office. For the California Report, I'm Scott Schaefer. A new bill would make it easier for school officials to find out whether a student has been vaccinated for COVID-19. The bill, introduced by San Diego Assemblywoman Akila Weber, would add COVID to the list of current required vaccines that are part of the California Immunization Registry. Right now, that registry includes vaccination status for chickenpox, measles, mumps, and rubella. Weber says she hopes this makes the process of keeping track of vaccinated students more streamlined for schools. So they're relying on parents giving out that information. I'm a parent. That's challenging. 
um, to have to always look for the for the vaccines that, that my kids have gotten. Um, and so to have it in a system already is one less thing that schools have to worry about, one less thing that parents have to worry about. Republican Assemblyman Kevin Kiley of Rockland said the bill raises privacy concerns. In a statement, he called it an affront to parental rights that would be used to, quote, target students based on the medical choices made by their families. And the fallout continues for California State University Chancellor Joseph Castro after an investigation found that in a previous job, Castro failed to discipline a senior administrator following a series of workplace harassment complaints. Cap Radio Scott Rod reports. Before he was chancellor of CSU, Castro was president of Fresno State University. One of his administrators faced at least a dozen misconduct complaints, according to a recent investigation by USA Today. The report found Castro paid the administrator a quarter million dollars, plus full retirement benefits, to quietly separate from the university. We absolutely have to investigate this immediately. Senator Connie Leva is chair of the state Senate Education Committee. She says if the reporting is accurate, Castro should resign. It is just outrageous that men continue to do these things and the women get left hung out to dry. In a statement, Castro said he welcomes an investigation and recognizes the situation should have been handled better. For The California Report, I'm Scott Rod in Sacramento. Support for the California Report comes from Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories. In stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. The California Healthcare Foundation. Working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org slash health-equity. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. The city of L.A. has put a pause on impounding cars for unpaid parking tickets. The directive follows a lawsuit that could shake up how L.A. enforces parking. KCRW's Tara Atrian has more. In a memo, the city of L.A. has ordered all parking enforcement personnel to immediately stop seizing cars that have accumulated five or more unpaid parking tickets, at least for now. The temporary suspension comes as a Koreatown resident is suing the city for impounding her car, even though it was legally parked. The woman has dozens of unpaid tickets. According to her lawyer Donald W. Cook, a judge ruled last month that the city misinterprets federal and state laws to justify warrantless impounds. Just because state law says you can do it, that don't make it right. The city's attempt to dismiss the woman's suit failed, and the case will still go to court. The decision in that trial could reverberate across L.A. Most of the people that the cities collect money from on, like, parking tickets tend to be people at the lower rungs of the social economic ladder. The city will still tow vehicles for other reasons, including for improper parking or presenting a traffic hazard. For the California Report, I'm Tara Atrion in Los Angeles. Officials in Woodside in San Mateo County have backed down from their plan to sidestep Senate Bill 9, the state's new housing law, over concern for local mountain lions. KQED's Rachel Myro has more. 
The decision came just hours after Attorney General Rob Bonta sent a letter notifying the town he considered its memorandum a, quote, deliberate and transparent attempt to avoid complying with SB 9. He continued, do your part to increase the housing supply. If you don't, my office won't stand idly by. So now the wealthy suburb with a human population of 5,500 is accepting applications to densify its housing. The town statement says officials recently received guidance from the Department of Fish and Wildlife that the entire town of Woodside cannot be considered mountain lion habitat. For the California Report, I'm Rachel Myro. And that's the California Report for Tuesday, February 8th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Alex Hall. Thanks for listening. On Monday, the Nevada County Planning Department announced that it has extended to April 4th the public review and comment period for the draft environmental impact report on the proposed reopening of the Idaho-Maryland mine. A special public meeting of the Nevada County Planning Commission regarding the mine has been rescheduled to March 24th. The planning department said the comment period was extended because of the year-end storms that caused many residents to lose power and internet capabilities. The extension allows the public a total of 91 days to submit comments. Rise Gold Corporation wants to restart underground mining and gold processing at the mine site. A copy of the draft environmental report is available for perusal on the county website or by appointment at the planning department or at local libraries. The Wolf Creek Community Alliance and Mine Watch Nevada County are sponsoring a letter-writing party next Tuesday for people who want to submit their opinions on the proposed reopening of the mine. The 6 p.m. event will take place at the Banner Community Guild at 12629 McCourtney Road in Grass Valley. Representatives of Mine Watch and Wolf Creek Community Alliance will be on hand with information to help attendees craft their comments in letter form. In a news release dated today, Rise Gold Corporation stated that the Nevada County Board of Supervisors has received 527 postcards in support of reopening the Idaho-Maryland mine. The postcards are the result of a Rise Gold mail campaign that went out to some Nevada County residents. The mailing included a postage-paid card that could be returned to Rise Gold for submission to the Nevada County Board of Supervisors. The Nevada Irrigation District announced today that despite a dry January, snowpack remains above average on NID snow courses that provide water to raw and treated water customers. During the February survey, NID found the average water content in the snowpack at the district's five high-elevation snow courses was 24.7 inches, which is 123.5% of the average for this time of year. As of February 2nd, cumulative precipitation at Bowman Reservoir was 43.46 inches, which is 114% of average. NID's Water Resources Superintendent, Thor Larson, said, After a wet December, January produced little precipitation, and that has continued into February with dry conditions projected for the next 10 days. Despite this dry weather, reservoir storage levels are near average, including an above-average snowpack. From Ubinet.com this afternoon, today Nevada County Public Health reported 36 new confirmed cases of COVID-19. 4,606 cases are currently active. 25 people are hospitalized, one of them in the intensive care unit. Two additional fatalities have been recorded, bringing the total death toll to 130. 
This reminder from the city of Grass Valley, Slate Creek Road between Ridge Road and the Grass Valley city limits will be closed to through traffic for paving work through Friday. The closure is between 7 a.m. and 5 p.m. And a traffic tip from Caltrans if you're driving through Auburn this weekend. Some ramps on and off Interstate 80 in Auburn will be closed between 6 a.m. and 5 p.m. Saturday and Sunday because Union Pacific will be making repairs to the overhead rail bridge. You don't hear much sports news here on KVMR, but for those of you who follow professional basketball, the Sacramento Kings today were part of a blockbuster trade that sends their second-year sensation, Tyrese Halliburton, to the Indiana Pacers, along with Buddy Heald and Tristan Thompson. In return, the Kings acquire two-time All-Star Domantas Sabonis and two other players. Turning to regional weather, this evening in Nevada City and Grass Valley, clear with a low of 53 degrees. Wednesday, some morning clouds, then mostly sunny with a high of 74 and a low of 55. In Truckee tonight, clear to partly cloudy with a low of 18. Wednesday in Truckee, partly cloudy with a high of 46 and a low of 21. In Sacramento this evening, clear with a low of 38. Wednesday in Sacramento, sunny with a high of 72 and a low of 43. Give a listen as Paul Emery talks with hydrologist Steve Baker about the many variables that make local wells vulnerable. What would happen if we lost our water supply? And what's the backup plan? This water news with Steve Baker is supported by Clearwater and filtration on Rough and Ready Highway, Grass Valley. Well, Steve, welcome back to KVMR. Uh, we have a pretty significant issue to both our creeks and rivers and groundwater, and, and that will get a lot of a lot of attention this month. Uh, that's because Nevada County has released the Rise Gold Draft Environmental Impact Report for reinitiating the underground gold mining at the Idaho Maryland Road in Nevada County. It's a big deal for lots of people. So I think we'll just dedicate the next couple, three weeks to issues related to water and the proposed mine. And what would you like to start with today? Well, let's start with uh, vulnerability. You know, the simple answer regarding vulnerability of our wells is, yes, all wells have their vulnerability, but some are more vulnerable than others. But absolutely, we have a vulnerability. Our wells do. The types of conditions that make uh, your wells more vulnerable to losing water include things like, you know, the fracture density. You know, how many fractures intersect your well bore, and uh, what's the connectivity of those fractures, and what, well, and those fractures with other faults that might exist in the near area, and and then also the changes that happen. And this might be difficult to comprehend, but it's called a groundwater hydraulic divide. It's, it's, it's kind of like a mound of water pressure, if you're just looking at the pressure, and it can change depending on the stresses on the aquifer, where you're pumping from, like the dewatering, or like somebody's wells pumping next to you, and, um, and where the water's coming into the system. And so that groundwater divide can change its location. So as these things change, it can create a vulnerability if, uh, if you're not aware of things so that you can make, make adjustments. I found under today's conditions, some wells are displaying normal seasonal you know, water level fluctuations, while other ones are showing a negative trend. 
It's just depends on the well. If you add another impact on top of these normal circumstances that we have in the area, like the dewatering of, of a mine, then you increase your chances of getting impacted by the mine plus, you know, the consequences of, of the drought condition, even in normal, healthy water years. So the types of uncertainties that make it very difficult uh, for many, including, uh, uh, you know, a mine company or, you know, uh, people owning their properties is the the data that's commonly used to estimate groundwater issues is uh, is comes off a well completion report and maybe, maybe some limited groundwater monitoring. These well completion reports, they don't have a lot of detail. You're not getting much information. And a lot of times it's incomplete. So it's it's even worse. The groundwater monitoring that many like like the mines, sometimes the developers also do this. Um, they try to use the available monitoring. They may up it by collecting some data, but typically the data sets are not long enough to really say anything of meaning regarding drought. And uh, they're not detailed enough either to really understand the real water level trends. So these are all issues uh, of uncertainty. Also faults, fractures, groundwater divides, all that stuff, it's not mappable. So how are we supposed to predict what's going to be happening up ahead? And then you add to that the connectivity to new mine workings, okay, where new shafts, new adits, you're pushing it out, you know, you're making this mine bigger. All those uh, uh, conditions all wrapped up together. The uncertainties go off the charts. It's, we really don't know what's going to happen for sure. So the answer regarding vulnerability are wells. They are vulnerable to losing their source of water. Well, Steve, are people prepared for this? Good question. In my view, our community is not prepared to lose their water supply. That's for darn sure. None of us want to lose the water supply, but really we're not prepared to respond in a good way. And um, if you were to ask somebody, you know, do you know if your water showing any signs of diminished water? Most people say, oh, I get 50 gallons a minute or I get 10 gallons a minute. Well, that means absolutely nothing. Uh, the real answer is, well, you know, no, I, I don't. If you're, if you're asked, uh, okay, if you're asked, if your well goes dry, do you have a backup plan? I've asked that to a lot of people. And usually the answer is, well, no, I've never really thought about that. The Rice Gold Mine is they want to get a permit for 80 years. I know. A lot can happen in that time, even legislatively. Um, are there other concerns related to this? Yeah. You know, one very significant concern to me is uh, our water right. Okay. There could be changes in water rights as we get more frequent and more severe droughts. It'll perpetuate changes legislatively. And the reason why I say that is we came out of a pretty significant drought in the 2014, 2015, 16. And, um, and as a result of that, the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act of 2014 was passed by uh, our Governor Brown. Okay. That was epic. I'm a groundwater guy, right? It's epic. I get all excited about that because we haven't seen anything like that in 50 years in California. Things don't change very quickly. But because of the drought, that management uh, legislation came about, and that's a very significant water rights change. Well, you're talking about 80 years with a gold mine, okay? Or if you're it's a land development, it's to perpetuity. You're going to have that new neighborhood out there forever. And uh, so during that segment of time, 
you may be dewatering things for others and it's causing a problem and that extends for a long period of time and no one's really doing anything about it. Well, we have right now an overlying groundwater right. It's a really strong water right. You, it's correlative. You have to, you can, you have, you're, you're basically sharing public water and you're being reasonable in its use. And if there's not enough to go around, everybody has, uses a little less so that we're, we're good at the end of the day. Well, if uh, there's a dewatering project going on and, and that water's going away and people are bickering about it and nothing is happening, it just continues for three to five years or more, you could have a prescriptive right overtake your groundwater right, your very, very strong groundwater right. So so right now there has to be changes in the legislation for this to really kick in up where we live. However, in 80 years, do you think that's going to happen? In my view, it will happen. And guess who's the loser in that deal? All of us. And this, can this happen within our lifetime of living up here in our homes? Absolutely. It's a concern of mine. And it's a part of any project. We need to think about that. Managing groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion, and that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been another conversation with KVMR's water guy, Steve Baker. You can email him with your questions at water at operationunite.co. Next up, it's Mark Cuniberti with Money Matters. Welcome to this edition of Money Matters. My name is Mark Cunaberti. When investors see the markets go down, they certainly feel the pain of losing their hard-earned money, but many may not fully comprehend the reasons for the sell-off. Markets may sell off for a variety of reasons, but the recent January carnage is thought by many to be caused by the upcoming actions expected to be taken by our central bank, the Federal Reserve. The term taper has been thrown about in the news media, and although economists and market professionals understand what taper means, few mom-and-pop investors do, and the news media seemingly doesn't even attempt to explain it. In the normal course of steering the economy, which in itself is a hotly debated issue as to whether an economy can actually be steered, the Federal Reserve, in times of economic stress, will buy debt from a variety of financial institutions such as banks and similar money centers. This debt might include U.S. government papers such as treasuries, bills, and U.S. notes, mortgage-backed securities, things like home loans and similar paper, and whatever else they deem appropriate and legal to do so. The legal part has been a bone of contention and hotly debated among Fed policy detractors, but that's a story for another day. As stress increases in the financial system for whatever reason, the Fed start buying the aforementioned debt paper in an operation known as quantitative easing. Although quantitative easing was relatively rare and only practiced during extreme emergency situations in the economy in the past, it has been increasing in frequency and quantity starting around the mid-1990s and accelerating every decade. The current decade has the most quantitative easing ever witnessed, whereas the original quantitative easing programs may have encompassed only a few hundred million dollars. Today's amounts of 80 to 100 billion a month is common. The elephant in the room is when the Fed see increasing inflation. They have to start to scale back on quantitative easing, as quantitative easing can be a major cause of inflation. So fast forward to today, and the Feds find themselves in a very difficult situation. The ongoing stressors on the financial system 
system caused by the COVID virus and its subsequent shutdowns, the Fed, who was buying hundreds of billions of dollars worth of assets a month in quantitative easing, must now, even in the face of a falling stock market, scale back quantitative easing because of the worsening inflation we are seeing. The scaling back of quantitative easing is what they mean when they mention the word taper. In simple English, the Feds will have to start to slow down QE, quantitative easing. In simple English, the Feds will start to slow down quantitative easing in an attempt to slow the inflationary fires we are now witnessing. Keep in mind, in the past, when the markets were stressed, the Feds would normally increase quantitative easing. Now it has to decrease it. Hence, they now find themselves in somewhat of a predicament. Try and buoy a falling stock market by more quantitative easing, and they will foster more inflation. Cut back on quantitative easing and try and curtail inflation, and the markets may fall hard once again. Making matters even more precarious, the Fed must also begin to raise interest rates, which is the second part of the inflation remedy. The quantitative tapering, coupled with the increase in interest rates, may put even more stress on the markets. Market participants realize that inflation is now bad enough that the Fed has to address it, and that as bad as a falling stock market can be, it is a secondary concern next to inflation. The Fed's know inflation is much more serious and can do much more damage to an economy than a falling stock market. Only time will tell if the Fed's quantitative easing tapering and the interest rate increases will continue to hammer the markets. For now, and at least in the month of January, it appears that the fear of these actions by the Federal Reserve is indeed putting the brakes on stocks. That does it for today's Money Matters. This newscast is my opinion only and may not represent those of this station, its staff, management, or underwriters, and should not be construed as individual investment advice. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com, where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. I hold California insurance license OL34249 and I'm a Medicare agent approved in the state of California. My name is Mark Cunaberti. Thanks for listening. That's our newscast. Coming up next at 6.30, it's Food Sleuth, with a discussion of what you can do to live a healthier and more environmentally friendly life. At 7, it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. For their support, KVMR thanks SPD Markets, family-operated for over 60 years, utilizing local farmers and suppliers, offering conventional, organic, and specialty products, hot and cold deli items, also bakery goods. In Nevada City and Grass Valley, spdmarket.com. And Mama Madrone's Eco Emporium on Broad Street, Nevada City, offering sustainably made clothing for the whole family, local and fair trade artisan gifts, home decor, jewelry, plus organic bed, bath, and body care. Information at mamamadrones.com. This is Joyce Miller wishing you a safe Tuesday evening.